And now for two nursing perspectives on these complex diseases. First, more discussion on multiple myeloma and comments from Ms. Kenna Miller. Multiple myeloma is not that common a phenomenon when you compare it to breast cancer or prostate cancer. And typically, 19 to 20,000 patients are diagnosed with the disease annually, with approximately 11,000 deaths annually. So that tells you that we have a long way to go in treating the disease. It's more common in men versus women. It's more common two to one in African Americans versus Caucasian population, and the median age, depending on which resource in the literature, it's over seventy-one years of age. You will have outliers in their thirties and forties. You'll have people much older that are diagnosed with the disease. What's the typical clinical presentation when a patient is first diagnosed? It's very interesting. Fifty-eight percent to sixty-seven percent of patients will present with bone pain. I like to tell nurses that you can never replace a very savvy primary care physician, and a lot of times the only abnormalities they will find when they're working a patient up, whether it's for a cardiac workup, whether it's for an annual physical, is they'll have an elevated total protein on a complete metabolic profile. Sometimes they'll have workup and find anemia. Patients will present with bone pain that exacerbates, and I can think of probably a good twenty patients in our clinical practice that the way they presented was bone pain. They went to a primary physician. They were either sent for physical therapy and were either imaged or not imaged. They ended up with pain, especially back pain, that exacerbated to the point that they ended up in an emergency room, and they had a compression fracture of their spine and were in renal failure. So, a lot of times, patients will present in renal failure as well. When we've surveyed oncologists and investigators in the field, we find that it's not rare for somebody to initially been diagnosed with something else. Like you said, you know, people think it's some other kind of back problem, or we've seen people where they thought it was lung cancer. So it's not rare, maybe because it's not a common disease that it takes a while to kind of make the diagnosis. And this can happen quite often. And like I said, you just can't replace a good primary physician that looks a little further based on the symptoms. And interestingly. I've heard of patients, and when I've gone out and lectured, someone actually told me about a brother, and he was a young person, and he was playing football and fractured one of his femurs. So they imaged him and found multiple lytic lesions, which is a fancy way of saying holes in the bones. Well, they thought about myeloma, but given his age, because he was young, he was only twenty-seven. They didn't really consider him as a person that would be typical for myeloma because it's a diseased. Mostly of the elderly, so workup ensued, and sure enough, he did have multiple myeloma. So you always have to look. One of the things we want to talk about today is how do you explain things to patients? And when you have a patient who has just been diagnosed with myeloma, how do you explain to them sort of what it is? I think the first thing when you explain the disease to patients is hopefully they have family members with them because. They're coming. I work in a tertiary center, an academic center. You slapped a person in the face and told them they might have cancer, and they're terrified. And they hear very little of what you say after you say they have cancer. I'll never forget a young woman that came in, and she came with her husband and her daughter, and she was a nurse, 
And she had very intelligent questions. They're suspecting multiple myeloma. And what is my prognosis? What can I expect? And the first thing the physician said, well, multiple myeloma is a disease. It's a blood cancer. It starts in the bone marrow. It's an overproliferation of plasma cells. And at this point, it's not a curable disease. And she literally leaped off the seat that she was sitting in, and she said, I have to leave right now. And he said, wait a minute. Sit down and let me say the next thing. He said, this is not a curable disease, but it's a very treatable disease. And we're very fortunate since 2003, there's been four new FDA-approved drugs to treat the disease. So a disease that in the literature probably 10 years ago told you you had a life expectancy of 3.5 to 5 years, we haven't reached the data yet on life expectancy because patients are living longer because there's more things to treat them with. And while unfortunately you tell people this isn't a curable disease at this point, it's very treatable. And you have to frame it in a reference that people can understand. So if you have hypertension, it's a chronic disease. You may be on a medication to control your blood pressure and it may work for a while, but then it won't work. And this is the way this disease is. You treat the disease, hopefully you'll get some sort of a remission for it, and you'll hopefully have periods of time where you don't need any treatment, but then you will need to change and treat with something new. How do you explain to patients the different types of problems that get caused and how that happens, assuming you have a patient who's interested and able to understand this, and they say to you, well, why do I get anemic? Why do I get bone pain? Why would my kidneys fail? How do you explain to them what happens? You start from the very basic. So this is a disease that starts in the bone marrow. The bone marrow is the blood factory. It makes all blood cells. So it's an overproliferation of plasma cells. So if you think of it, this is your body's blood factory. So you're overproducing plasma cells. So now you can't produce your hemoglobin, which is your oxygen-carrying capacity. You can't produce your neutrophils, which is your infection-fighting capacity. And you can't produce your platelets, which keep you from bleeding because you're too busy making plasma cells. It's like your car lines in a factory. You overproduce on one. You're sparing your resources for something else. So that's how the anemia presents. What happens oftentimes is the proteins that are involved in myeloma, it's an overproduction of certain proteins, and the proteins don't work right. Proteins are big and fat, so all the blood is filtered through the kidneys. So the proteins clog up the kidneys, and this is why you can have renal dysfunction. An example I give to patients is when you're talking to them and you need to reinforce that they need to have a lot of fluid intake to keep the kidneys flushed is an example of you try to put pulp orange juice through a strainer. There's a lot of pulp clogging up the strainer. If you have a lot of fluid behind it, it'll push the pulp through. Same thing with the proteins that are involved in myeloma. If you keep well hydrated, you'll keep them out of your kidneys. And then bone disease is another hallmark of the disease. What happens at the very cellular level is cells that build bone are underactive. Cells that destroy bone 
osteoclasts are overactive and people end up with holes in their bones. And that's just what it looks like on an x-ray. It looks like a big hole in your bone. And you can have pain from the hole in the bone. You can have high risk for fracture with just normal activity. And what about the approach to treatment? Sort of globally, how do you usually think through the way you're going to approach it? And what's the difference in how you might approach a patient, let's say, in their 60s and good health compared to a patient who's more in their 70s and maybe starting to have some other problems? So the first thing is you come up with your diagnosis. So if you have someone in their 70s, typically as we get older, we have more comorbidities. So in other words, the older you get, the more problems you may have. You may have underlying diabetes. You may have underlying hypertension. You may have underlying cardiac disease. So when you're deciding what you need to give a patient to treat the disease, you have to take into consideration their overall health. You need to consider whether you feel that this patient at some point would be a stem cell transplant candidate. The age they used to cut off for transplant used to be 65. Now it's 70. And the joke in the community is as transplanters age, so does the age go up that they'll transplant patients. <laughs> So that's the first consideration. And they try not to go as much by chronological age, but the patient's performance status. How good do they feel? How able to carry out normal activity are these people? We all know of people that we can think of in our own lives that in their 50s, they're not in the greatest of health, but we know 70-year-olds that lift weights every day. What is the role of transplant in myeloma? What's the purpose of it? Where do you sort of fit it in? Well, the first thing when you're considering treating a patient, do you feel they're a candidate for stem cell transplant, yes or no? So if you feel they're a candidate at some point for stem cell transplant, you don't want to give them an alkylating agent or a medication to treat the disease that will so suppress the bone marrow that you can harvest stem cells. So then it eliminates a category of medications that you would give a patient as a first treatment. And then after you get past the, the initial decision, are they a stem cell candidate or not, then you can pick your chemotherapeutic regimen or your intervention based on the overall patient. You may not want to use steroids in a patient that has underlying diabetes because it will make the glucose levels significantly higher. And what is the purpose of doing the transplant? Are you trying to cure the patient? To date, there is no cure for multiple myeloma. The idea with a transplant is to give patients the longest durable remission. So in other words, if you can give them one to two to three years or hopefully longer before you need to treat the disease again. So that's something that patients take into consideration when you tell them, do you want to consider some cell transplant? What are the types of treatment that might be first started in someone who you're thinking is going to go to a transplant? And what are the types of treatments that are often first started in the patients who are older who are not going to go for transplant? If you want to discuss first people that you might think go on to transplant, you need to avoid a malphalan-containing regimen because it suppresses the bone marrow. So you can use combinations of medications, bortezomib plus dexamethasone. There's clinical trials for frontline 
therapies to see what is better. Dexamethasone and thalidomide has been used as a frontline therapy. Dexamethasone and lenalidomide has been used. Most transplanters don't want any more than four to five cycles of therapy with that because they find it more difficult to harvest stem cells. So you need to keep that in mind when you're treating a patient. And I know there are a lot of combination regimens that have been used recently. Most of them seem to include dexamethasone. Some include the agent bortezomib. Others include the agents you mentioned, the imids, lenalidomide or thalidomide. And you know, a lot of these regimens include two or three drugs. How often do you use that? For example, we hear a lot about the so-called RBD regimen of lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone. Is that something you all use a lot? We have used that as well. We had our own clinical trial. It was an investigator-initiated trial. We used doxyl, bortezomib, thalidomide as a frontline therapy. We used the old VAD regimen, which was venkristin, adriamycin, and dexamethasone, but we added on thalidomide to that as well. Uh, so there's a multitude of choices. There's double or triplet combinations with two or three different drugs, and you can tailor it to the patient's disease, their comorbidities, the toxicities of the drug, and their cytogenetics, whatever you feel is best fit for that patient. There's also clinical trials currently available for frontline treatment. And the value of clinical trials when you're using them for frontline treatment is, and I'll give you an example. The old standard treatment used to be a triple drug combination called VAD, which was the vincristin, adriamycin, dexamethasone. So new clinical trials looked at dexamethasone and thalidomide. So you have the information what your partial remissions were, what your complete remissions were with the previous therapy, but the clinical trial proved that thalidomide and dexamethasone was better. So then you move to a new standard. And what they do is there's constantly clinical trials looking at and trying to find the best first regimen. We don't know yet what's best. They talk about sequencing now. We don't know what's best to give first. Are you better off to give this drug before you give that drug? So they're looking at sequencing as well to find out what is best to do. Maybe you can go through the common ones and what you say to patients who are about to begin on these agents specifically in terms of patient education. All right. So we'll discuss each of the individual drugs. So if you start with a drug called bortezomib, it's a proteasome inhibitor. Doses have to be 72 hours apart. I always tell the patients, remember that it has to be 72 hours apart in case you get the dose at 3 o'clock this afternoon and they put you in the following day at 8 o'clock in the morning. They can't do that, and you have to know that. Side effects with this include fatigue, and actually that's one of the symptoms that patients complain of most with this drug. Another side effect of this is sensory peripheral neuropathy, and by that I mean tenderness, pain, it can be tingling, it can be cramping, and it's usually in dependent positions. Usually patients experience it first with the fingers and the toes. And we end up grading these side effects when patients have them. If it becomes too overwhelming, then it's important to dose reduce the medication. The original clinical trials using this medication show that people recovered back to baseline or one grade better after they completed the drug, but that isn't always the case. So you 
you need to inform patients, that you need to report to me the side effects that you're having. And then another phenomenon you see with patients is a lot of times they won't tell you about the side effects because they're afraid you're going to take them off the drug. And that's why important that family members come with them because if you won't tell me, your wife is going to tell me that you get up in the middle of the night because the sheets hurt your feet at night. Another side effect you can have with the bortezomib is thrombocytopenia or low platelets. It's important to let patients know that it's lowest at day 11 and it's typically dosed on day 1, 4, 8, and 11. It's lowest on day 11. Then people get a week to recover. And usually by day 21, when you're going to dose them again, their level has recovered to a point where you can treat them. So if you're thrombocytopenic with low platelets, you have a high risk for bleeding. So you said that bortezomib is a proteasome inhibitor. And I don't know how often patients ask you, well, what's that mean? But if they did, how would you explain it to them? All cells in the body work along a proteasome pathway. When you give a proteasome inhibitor, cancer cells are more susceptible. So it degrades the protein used in synthesis. So cancer cells are more susceptible. So you chew up these proteins that the cell needs to reproduce. Normal cells recover quickly. So usually by the 72 hours, they have improved and patients can tolerate the next round of dosing. Again, cancer cells are more susceptible and they die easier because you've inhibited the pathway they need to reproduce. Now you mentioned the issue of peripheral neuropathy with bortezomib, which I know is one thing that there's a lot of concern about. What kinds of symptoms or signs do you tell patients to call you about as opposed to wait for the next visit? Pain. This is a very interesting side effect. It's different the neuropathy from bortezomib is very different from the neuropathy you would experience with a thalidomide. So if it's pain, and if it's pain interfering with function. So in other words, you can't go about the activities of your normal daily life. You can't go to work because you can't put shoes on your feet because it hurts too much. Anything else you want to say? I'd like you to maybe go on to the next agent, but you mentioned that the drug is given at least 72 hours apart. I've seen people thinking about and talking about giving the drug in a weekly interval to try to decrease the neuropathy. I know that there have been some clinical studies that have demonstrated that when you give it weekly, there's less neuropathy. Is that something that you all have done at your center? Yes, we have, actually. There's new ongoing studies. It's currently FDA-approved right now on day 1, 4, and 11. There's ongoing studies to look at the dose reduction with weekly. And as those studies mature, then our standard of care has changed. The beauty of this drug is there's multiple dose reductions built into it. That's why it's important for patients to report the symptoms because you can dose reduce. It starts out at 1.3 milligrams per meter square. It can go down to 1 0.0 milligrams per meter square and go down to 0.7, and then you can go to weekly dosing. So yes, we have done it in several different regimens that we use at our institute. You mentioned the so-called IMIDs, thalidomide and lenalidomide, and you know those agents plus bortezomib seems like are really the things that have revolutionized the treatment of this disease. What do you say to a patient who's about to begin one of these IMIDs in terms of how it works, how it's administered, and sort of what kind of problems they might get into? The imids, thalidomide and lenalidomide, they have two very different side effect profiles, so you can tailor 
to your patient what their underlying symptoms are. Lenalidomide, you see a great deal more pancytopenia. So in other words, your neutrophils go down, which is your infection-fighting capacity. Your hemoglobin goes down. You can become more anemic. Thrombocytopenia, a higher risk for bleeding. That's the side effect profile with that. With thalidomide, it's more fatigue. You can have dependent swelling. You typically see it with feet. People come in with edema in their feet, and the first question I ask them is, is it better in the morning and worse at night? So you intervene. Put your feet up. I tell them it's okay. Finally, it's okay for a girl to tell you to put your feet up with the TV control. (laughs) So, (laughs) and when you explain how it works, it's an immunomodulatory agent. So in other words, it invokes the immune system to help recognize the disease and help control it. It's also anti-angiogenic, which is a fancy way of saying it decreases the blood supply. What you want to do is decrease the blood supply to the cancer cells, and that's another way how it works. And what about the risk for thrombosis with these agents? There is a lesser risk if they're used as single agents when you pair them with a steroid such as dexamethasone or prednisone, the risk is greatly increased. So you have to put patients on some sort of prophylaxis, and it varies from institute to institute. We use weight-based Coumadin. If they're over 70 kilos or above, we use 2 milligrams, 69 kilos or below, we use 1 milligram. Some places use full-dose aspirins. Some people use 325 aspirin. Some people use low-molecular weight heparin, which I think is a little more difficult because, number one, you have to get insurance to pay for it. And number two, you have to have patients who are willing to stick themselves with a needle once or twice a day for it. If patients have underlying risk factors that also make them high risk for blood clots, you may want to fully anticoagulate them if you're going to put them on an imid in combination with a steroid or with doxel, which is another medication that can increase their risk for blood clots. Now, as you mentioned, one of the treatments is to combine dexamethasone with one of these agents that you just mentioned, these three agents that have really changed so much our approach to this disease. If a patient says to you, what's the chance that I'm going to sort of cruise through this without any problems? What's the chance that I'm going to go through this, but I'm going to have some problems, but you'll be able to control it pretty easily? And what's the chance I'm going to have some major problems? The way I present it to patients is you go over the general side effects that are known to happen with the drug. And then it's fair to say to patients, there may be side effects that you'll experience that haven't been documented or have less frequency. And an example of that is hearing loss with bortezomib. You go over the major things that you're aware of, and I'll tell patients, if something is unusual that's happening, then call me. And I will sort out the, okay, 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 versus the, oh my heavens, I have to do something about this. The most important thing is that they understand that it's important to call if something different is happening. An example of that is the hearing loss. And the thing is, it always ends up being a constant reinforcement, not only by the clinician, but each and every nurse that interacts with the patient throughout the course of their care is reinforcing what side effects are. 
and sometimes patients don't volunteer it. So sometimes you have to pull it out of them. Do you have numbness and tingling in your feet? Have you had persistent diarrhea? How many times a day are you going? Are you taking anything for it? Do you notice it the day of and the day after to take the medication? Is there foods that control it, foods that aggravate it? What kind of interventions can we do? I usually tell patients, report everything to me and I'll sort out the fart aches from the oh my heavens. (laughs) Why don't we go through your cases Why don't we start with the first one? Maybe you can just sort of briefly present how the patient presented and what happened. A very basic case is a 60-year-old lady. She presented with IgG lambda myeloma, and she had had a persistent back pain and fatigue, and that's how she originally presented to her primary doctor. We saw her in consultation when we see patients. Some of the workup is done, some of it isn't. We do a full workup in any event. She had a skeletal survey which showed no lytic lesions. If patients do have lytic lesions, then you need to start them on bone-strengthening medicines. Bisphosphonates is the category of medications. We know now, after years of experience with these medications, you have to screen patients' dental health. Patients have recent extractions or invasive dental work such as root canals, they need to be off of these bisphosphonates. So this particular lady didn't have any lytic lesions, so she has not required bisphosphonates. We treated her with what our upfront study at the time was, and that was the old VAD regimen, but paired with thalidomide. She got six cycles of therapy and was in a complete remission. And the most stringent remission you can get is immunofixation negative. They'll call it BLADE, B-L-A-D-E, or European bone marrow transplant remission. We sent her for consultation for stem cell transplantation. She listened to what they had to say, and she decided she would wait and see what she could get out of the initial regimen that she had. So this lady is actually out in a follow-up clinic with me. And I'm very happy to say that she's five years in a complete remission on her initial therapy. That's awesome. It's a little on the unusual side, but it's fabulous. So stem cell transplant is still an option for her. She's 60 years old, but right now she remains in remission. And when you say it's unusual, if someone were to say to you with this kind of a presentation, what's the chance you're going to be able to give me a treatment for you know a few months or six months? and then I won't need any more treatment, I'll be fine for five years. I don't know as I have the background to even put a number on it. I would say, given my experience in treating myeloma patients over the last 10 years, that it's unusual, but it does happen. And the most important thing that you have to reinforce with patients is that you need to just be followed on a regular basis. And the interesting thing is, when you follow patients on a regular basis, Because this is not a curable disease, you pick and choose very carefully when you choose to intervene. I can think of another lady that we had, and she's in her late 60s currently. She was given an induction regimen, went on to stem cell transplant. She went in with an M-spike of 0.2, came out of transplant with an M-spike of 0.1. Could you explain what an M-spike is? An M-spike, when you look at a test called serum electrophoresis, this monitors a monoclonal protein which is a marker for the disease. Every patient with myeloma is very difficult. 
patients can have this M-spike in the serum in the blood. Some people can have it in the urine. Some people can have it vice versa. Some people can have it both. It can change throughout their continuum of care, or they can have neither and have soft tissue tumors that are plasma cells. So everybody's very different. That's why the disease is kind of a challenge to follow and treat. This lady, probably a year out from her initial treatment, started to progress. But she's four and a half years out, and we still haven't needed to treat her again because the pace at which her disease is progressing is so slow. And it doesn't give her symptoms that you need to treat her for. And if you use the CRAB criteria, which is renal dysfunction, high calcium, low hemoglobin, or bone disease. She doesn't have any of these things. She has normal renal function. She has a good hemoglobin. She's asymptomatic. So she's well into four and a half years out and still doesn't need treated yet. But the disease is there. The disease is slowly progressing. Now, what was her life situation when you first met her in terms of family and work? She had always been a stay-at-home mom. She was a very, very lovely, very classy lady, her daughter was actually a pediatric stem cell transplanter. Wow. And the most interesting thing is she was the focus. And her husband ended up being diagnosed with lung cancer, and he died. Wow. And you always think in terms of yourself, and this is what happened in her life. So, you know, when you think you're diagnosed with cancer and something like this— it doesn't just happen in a box. It's what happens in the rest of your life and how your life situation changes. Now, when you sat down with her, did you bring up the issue or did she ask you initially about, quote, the curability and of the situation and what to expect from the future? Yes, she did. So the most important things is people need to realize that, yes, we will evaluate on a very regular basis. We have very few and I'm really hard-pressed to think of any patient who isn't monitored at least every three months. And I tell patients, I hope that you and I will grow old together. And gravity is actually our friend. <laughs> and wrinkles are our friend. And you think about life differently. You put butter on your toast if you want it. And if you feel like having a steak once in a while, you have it because each day is precious and you take it for what it's worth. What was her sort of emotional reaction to this diagnosis? You talked about the fact that a lot of people are just completely overwhelmed. Is that what happened with her at first? I think it happens with every patient, and it's very normal. We get up every day with the expectation that we will grow old, and our children will grow up, and we'll spoil our grandchildren, and we'll have a full life. And somebody tells you that maybe that's not on your horizon. And it's a very emotional and it's a very life-altering experience whenever someone has told you that you're diagnosed with cancer. It's very unique with any kind of cancer. When somebody tells you you have hypertension, well, I'll take a pill and I'll be fine. If they tell you you have coronary artery disease, you take a pill and you change your diet and you try to exercise. But when someone tells you you have cancer, the overwhelming connotation with that is, oh, my God, I may die. So it is a very emotional thing, and it involves the entire family.